Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, friends. Welcome to our show today. We are so excited to have Josh Doyle with us, and he is an educational consultant, and he's going to tell you a little bit about what that means or what he does, but I just wanted to share a little bit about him. He has dedicated 25 years to working with students and young adults who struggle with learning, attention, social, emotional, and behavioral issues with a special focus on specialized placements. And he's just very well recognized in the industry, a definite reputation for being honest, direct, passionate, and definitely has the knowledge and skill and know-how to, to assist families that are struggling with their students that are struggling and where, what to do. Uh, welcome to the show, Josh. So, welcome, Josh. Thank you, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I've known Josh for a couple of years now. Um, the thing that I respect the most because it's probably like me is he gets right to the, it gets right, right to the point. Uh, no beating around the bush says it like it is, which isn't, isn't harsh um, or unloving. It's more like a surgeon. I think that has a sharp scalpel to get the job done um, when a cut needs to be made in the right spot. And I think that's different than cutting to do harm. It's cutting to heal. So I do really re- appreciate and respect that Josh. Thank you. The most valuable commodity uh, that we have is time. So it's important to recognize that. So, yeah. <laughs> so Josh, you're an education consultant. Tell us what that is and, and why you do it. Well, there's, uh, it's a good question. Um, there are many different types of educational consultants that do many different types of things. You know, there's some educational consultants that, uh, you know, they you know, families will hire to assist their child to find, you know, a college, you know, the ideal college for them, um, or maybe doing a gap year or, you know, studying abroad. The type of work that I do specifically is that I'm a specialized educational consultant in the sense that I work with children and families and young adults um, who are really uh, genuinely struggling. Um in most cases, most of the work that I get, uh, most of the referrals that I receive are from uh, mental health men, mental health practitioners um, and various different you know practitioners who are working with families where you know they have concluded that what they you know what the family has been accessing and using locally is not working, and that they need to do something different. And so the parents will often say that there's this, you know, person you need to call. And um, so I guess what it comes down to is, is that I hate to think of myself as being the last person you want to call, but when people typically call me, it means, unfortunately, that their child's in, their child's having a tough time. Uh, what does that mean? It could mean that their child is currently in the hospital for mental health issues. It could mean that they haven't left their room in days other than to go to the bathroom. Uh, It could mean that they refuse to go to school, whether it's due to depression, anxiety, complicated learning differences, what have you. 
my job is essentially is to assess, you know, what the child's needs are, but I'm on the road about a hundred days a year, visiting and revisiting various schools and programs, getting to know them intimately. Uh, before I was a consultant, I spent 15 years working in boarding schools, specifically for kids with very complex learning issues uh, and behavioral struggles. Um, so I, one could argue that makes me qualified to be able to walk into a school or program and assess you know, whether or not they're using best practices. You know, how healthy is your organization? Are their practices current? Is the program safe? But also importantly, you know, what type of needs are they meeting for the, the clients that they have? Um, it's a lot, but I guess one could argue in the most simplest of terms is I'm really nothing more than a glorified matchmaker. It sounds kind of <laughs> simplistic, but I'm a complicated. Well, and with your, with your background, actual experience in a program that I bet that's just huge for being able to really see a program and what, you know, you know what to look for and you. Well, I, I, I'd like to think so, but you know what, one of the things that, that I often try to, you know, tell my colleagues is that, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, who do what I do for a living, a lot of, you know, parents who have never been through this before, one can get a PhD and still not have a clue um, as to how the world operates pertaining to you know, certain institutions. So what I mean by that is, is that, you know, when I look at a school, when I look at a program and I look at how they're taking care of the kids, I also have to have, I, I hopefully have true empathy for not only the children, uh, but also for the staff and the leaders of the organization. Um, oftentimes I find myself uh, frustrated with uh, various people because Many of them are so critical of how a school is run, how they're meeting the needs of the students. But many of these people uh, who are so critical uh, have virtually no experience of what it's like working in an actual program. They don't understand uh, the give and take. They don't understand, you know, the lethargy that a staff member can go through. Right. Um, and so until you have worked in a residential setting for children with special needs or even adults with special needs until you've done that in the middle of the winter on a Sunday night after working, you know, five straight days, please refrain from giving feedback. Josh, <laughs> we're talking about programs quite a bit. One of our goals with this podcast is to help parents never have to get involved with a consultant to have an out-of-home placement or specialized yeah. intensive yeah. placement. And also a lot of them aren't going to be able to afford some of the specialized programs that we're talking about. But I do believe, or, and I do believe that the most crises moments are what teaches us the most basic important principles. So, so people who've worked in the cutting edge of where it gets really, really hard tend to come up with the best foundation for advice and principles that work. And that's, that's why we have you on. And I, I want to pick your brain about a couple of things. One of the hardest things for parents is knowing how hard to push their kid, where to have high expectations and where to have realistic expectations. 
think many of them feel shame that if they lower their expectations, they're giving up on their child mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or they're worried that they're going to be judged by other people if they let their child, uh, if they let their child get away with eating junk food, you know, because they're sick of the battle or if they really are okay with their child not getting, uh, I don't know, straight A's in school, um, temper tantrums are handled differently with a neurodiverse population and and our students are you know, the, the families that we're reaching out to here in this podcast are neurodiverse, not just mental health, or maybe not even mental health at all, but they have a di- very different track. What, what do you do? What perspectives do you have on what you would tell parents to have the right balance of you got to push them, but not too hard? Yeah. And, you know, that's your, your, your question is, is very well articulated. And, you know, I, I would have to say that, you know, while working, having worked with neurodiverse students for over 25 years, um, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that those particular kids, yeah, they're my favorite. They make me laugh. I don't laugh at them. Okay, maybe I do laugh at them a little bit, but it's always done with the best of intention. And I, my hope for them is they one day learn to laugh at me. Yeah, and, and they laugh at you know, them I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I think that, you know, so st- starting sort of in the macro sense is that, you know, um, how far is it, you know, how far can you push your kid until you push them away? And that, ha- you know, whether the child is neurodiverse or neurotypical, um, you know, that's a constant battle that you have with, you know, every, you know, with yourself as a parent, um, what are my child's parameters? What are they capable of? You know, no two children are exactly alike. Um, uh, one thing I, I would be amiss if I didn't mention that um, in terms of the complicated family dynamics that can occur, it often happens is that the children who do not have learning differences, the students, the, the children that are not neurodiverse, um, oftentimes uh, the amount of stress that they feel because virtually they feel that there's no attention being given to them because the student, the child that is neurodiverse Right. Right. Struggles so much. And so, uh, you know, so in terms of so your question is well intended, Jason, and well received. But, you know, it's important to be mindful of, you know, not only how do I help my children, my child is struggling, but just as importantly, how do I continue to maintain a healthy relationship with my children who are not struggling? Now and, you have to set yourself up to have to come back on to another podcast because yeah. that is a, a whole other topic that we do need to cover. Yeah, we're going to yeah. that so, down. Sorry if I'm being important. too broad. So, um, you know, I think that you know what I will often tell parents is is that a lot of you know parents will you know come to me and understandably, and they'll want me to be able to look into a crystal ball and tell exactly you know what what are the outcomes going to be. And what I'll often say is, is that, you know, when we're going into this process of trying to select a school or a program or even a life arrangement, the most important thing that you always have to keep in front of you is you need to make informed decisions and you need to make those decisions based off data. You should not rely as much on hope. Now, (laughs) Hope gets us through the day. Hope is what sustains us. Hope and faith is what keeps many of us moving in this world. But when you start relying on hope, that 
well, we're hopeful this will work out, or we're thinking if we just do it again, meaning like sending them to another school or sending them to another program, that in essence is setting them up for failure. Right. So I have nothing to do with knowledge and naivety and wisdom. Precisely. Precisely. So a lot of, you know, parents will sometimes say to me, well, you know, Josh, you know, we, we hear what you're saying. We would like to follow through in your recommendations, but we just want to see what will happen if we send him to college or her to college, or if we, you know, take a year off or, you know, doing, I guess, the most normalized route because they feel shame as parents. They want their child to have a typical experience. When you're making decisions based off hope, false sense of hope, you are unfortunately really running the risk of your child uh, feeling an overwhelming sense of failure. Yes. Um, the most difficult cases I have, uh, the ones that are the most agonizing, um, are when I'm working with a young adult who's 20, who limped along, who's neurodiverse, who limped along through high school, struggled through high school. And the parents went to great lengths and gave it everything that they had with the best of intentions by uh, micromanaging, for lack of a better way of putting it, the child's life. You know, you know, a 16-year-old still executive functioning, you know, therapy, everything. And then the hope is, is that, well, you know, they really struggle through high school. They struggle through adolescence, but we're hopeful that just, you know, adulthood will flourish. And unfortunately, that often doesn't happen. You know, in many cases, those students will come back home by um, Thanksgiving and be demoralized and not want to return home. And their plan you know, often was if they just get really good roommates, that's that's what I'm hoping for. And that's, yeah. that's the plan they have in place. Good yeah. roommates at college will save the day. Yeah. You know, this uh, this past year has been uh, a very, very humbling one. Um, I have two children, both of whom are neurotypical. Um, and my son uh, just, you know, not just, but, you know, uh, completed his first semester in college. He graduated from high school this past spring. Um, you know, I'm very proud of him, but I would be lying to you if I told you that he had a, uh, fulfilling semester. Uh, he was very lonely. He was very alienated. He had difficulty making friends. Um, and it's hard to do that when you're, everyone's wearing a mask. Uh, we, you know, kids that are neurodiverse have difficulty picking up facial expressions. Right. I think I, I'm sorry. They wear two masks. Our neurodiverse. Yeah. They have to pretend, pretend they're typical and hide behind mm-hmm. a mask. Yeah. So my son got through the semester. I'm very proud of him, and uh, you know, I, I'm in awe of him, frankly. But you know, it it humbled me to think that um, that there's a lot of children out there who don't necessarily have the same level of emotional bandwidth. And and my son is not special. You know, he's a wonderful kid. He's mine. He's all mine. And I love him more than anything, but uh, it just, it, it's, it's been this reckoning that, we, that I feel as though a lot of us have had on many levels, but this year has been very difficult for neurodiverse students who have gone off to college, who felt even more alienated. Right. Um, who, you know, really were not in a position to utilize the resources. 
Um, and I think that, you know, for the neurodiverse population, um, and what I keep trying to convey to parents is, is that, you know, instead of just thinking that, uh, you know, social, social opportunities will be created through osmosis, they don't. They, you know, if something has to be created for them, it has to be Intention. common interests. Yep. There has to be a community that essentially is put together by someone else that they can show up to. And once they show up to that community with a common interest, um, it's going to be very difficult for them to, you know, find, you know, companionship. Right. They can't create their own social experiences. They can't, they, well they can't create their own social experiences, but they can find, and this is something I think that, you know, parents need to realize that um, they do need help creating, you know, a, a social, you know, atmosphere. That being said, um, in the 25 years that I've been working with these, you know, wonderful people, um, many of them go on to live very happy, fulfilling, meaningful lives. Now, they may, their life, their day-to-day may be uh, dissimilar to that of their parents or their siblings. It may be dissimilar as to what many people, perhaps what most people uh, consider to be fulfillment and happiness. But if they themselves are happy and they're leading fulfilling lives and they're being contributing members to society, we have to, you know, sometimes like let go of our own, even vanity. <laughs> let, let these children live. These adults live. If they're I happy. That, I love that you point that out because I think that is a struggle. I know as a mom, I had to go through that personally with our own sons and it was hard to let go of what I thought their life should look like or what how I would be doing it and um, it looks a little more messy or it looks a little you know it's not the same and it it it, it's you have to separate that out from your own personal like identity and Mm -hmm. self-worth right like they they need to they're they're different their brain thinks differently and their life's going to look a little different and that's it's okay. And, that, and making peace with that, I think, is also well, valuable. There's a very real risk that they won't be able to be self-sufficient. And there's so you're kind of in a an unknown place and with unknown. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there is some valid concern that maybe they won't ever be independent. And maybe they'll only be independent to a certain degree. And you can spend a lot of energy and time and emotion worrying about the future, which is really not helpful. It actually creates problems with how you interact and try to mentor and influence your child. Uh, I want to go back to what you said a minute ago about um, hoping that they were able to help their child get through high school and then they don't really have a launch plan. They're just hoping that because it's 18 and 19, you know, the, the adult genes will kick in. They'll just naturally want to. We all know that they're developmentally behind, but parents don't recognize that as a functional issue. One of the recommendations we often give is you're going to have to look at past performance to judge future performance. And why would we suddenly assume that they're capable of doing something they couldn't do a month before? Mm -hmm. And that just goes against everything that's logical. And yet we do as parents hoping, hoping. Well, we do as parents, but I, but I also think too, that, you know, and, you know, I'm as guilty of this as, as anyone, but, um, yeah. And, and I'm not, I'm not being critical of, of, you know, people in particular, but I also think that we, you know, that people just need to take a deep breath and just think about, you know, the following. 
Um, this past spring, uh, the class of 1990 from high school, the kids that graduated from high school, most of them were born immediately following 9-11. And they grew up in a world, you know, in a country that was at war, where everything that we thought we knew had been turned upside down. And the amount of anxiety, the amount of, you know, depression, the uncertainty that 9-11 did to the world was pretty profound. And then uh, in 2008, seven years later, you know, the world was again turned upside down because of the financial crisis. And that was even more, even more trying in, in many, in, not more trying, you know, let me retract on that. It was, it was different. It, it caused an enormous amount of anxiety. People did not have the level of financial security. There was a lot of anger, a lot of resentment because of that whole matter. Um, and a lot of people are still, you know, trying to get back to where they were financially. Uh, and then in 2020, as these kids are getting ready to graduate from high school, the pandemic hits. So there's all of these, you know, worldwide events that have been happening. And it has made us as a world more anxious, you know, add into the whole new normal of throwing in technology and how it hasn't really brought us closer together. <laughs> it's in some ways made us even more separated. So right. what am I getting at? Um, overwhelmingly, young adults and adolescents are far more anxious than they were in previous generations. The current generation of adolescents are frankly more anxious and depressed than the millennials. Right. And far more anxious than Generation X. And add to that neurodiversity. And you and you absolutely, Jason, <laughs> add add neurodiversity to it. Um, you know, I would have to say that, you know, um the kids that I was working with a number of years ago, the struggles that they were having, the types of struggles that they were having, um, not doing well in school, feeling alienated, feeling depressed. A lot of those kids at the time, you know, were neurodiverse and they still are, but I'm finding uh, an overwhelming number of kids that are neurotypical that are having the same types of struggles that were more common with a diverse population. Right. Agreed. So, and I think a lot of it is also, it's just that, you know, the parents who have, the neurotypical children, and I'm guilty of this as well, that we will just say, well, you know, yeah, they're anxious. Yeah, they're struggling. But maybe when we just send them to college and maybe the light bulb goes off when they're 18 and they're adults. Yeah. Well, those are some great big picture philosophies. Tell me specifically, what, what would you recommend for parents who are trying to teach their kids resilience so that they aren't as fragile, not as anxious, not as overwhelmed? What can parents do to prepare their kid for that, that cliff that comes post high school? Mm -hmm. um, I think that the most important thing that we can teach, you know, all children, you know, is, you know, one is self-advocacy, you know, learning how to appropriately advocate for oneself. You know, um, advocacy has to be done thoughtfully. One could be obnoxious and advocate for themselves by yelling and screaming, but that's really not advocating. You know, knowing how to advocate is one thing, but I think that one thing, another thing rather that, you know, is, is of the most importance is, is that, you know, teaching, um, 
our children and ourselves, frankly, um, that it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to feel awkward. It's okay to a certain degree to feel unsafe. One should not go out and seek to feel unsafe, but one also has to be rational in terms of, you know, is this what I'm feeling? Is this going to have an adverse effect on me? You know, um, you know, we're at a point where uh, it's more and more common that we only feel safe with people who look like us, who talk like us, who act like us. And uh, when one is put into situations where, you know, things are less than ideal, when there's nuance, when there's, you know, a, a new opportunity, people are often overwhelmed by that experience. And so I guess it comes down to, you know, how do you treat somebody with, you know, uh, who's anxious, who's, uh, you know, got elements of OCD. The most, you know, common types of therapies, the most evidence-based therapies is exposure, is learning to sit with discomfort, learning how to get through a moment that if you can say, I feel uncomfortable, but I have to figure this out on my own. I have to learn. To say to your child, when your child says, I'm really, really upset. Okay, I hear that. It sounds like you're really upset. What, what can you do? To help yourself. Well, and I think the tendency when we see our child, you know, when they're uncomfortable or they're upset is to go, oh no, something's wrong. I got to fix it. Like something's yeah. gone wrong here. And one of our big mantras at Techie for Life at our program is we need to get them out of their comfort zone. Yes. That's where the growth happens, but not overwhelmed. Like we don't want them totally shutting down and overwhelmed. So like there's that sweet balance. And now when I see a student struggling, I used to panic like, oh no, our program isn't helping out. Like, and now I'm like, oh, this is where the growth is going to happen. Like, this is the opportunity now. This is the opportunity for growth. Yep. The yeah. first call we get from parents after the honeymoon ends is my son is crashing or my daughter is really anxious. Is there something wrong? You know, something went wrong. We're paying you to make sure nothing goes wrong. And that's our mistake if they think that because we usually do a lot of front loading where our goal is to trip them up, help them practice, get some muscle, some resilience so that they can practice it in a safe environment so that they get all of those mistakes out. And then mm -hmm. when they're independent, they're a lot less likely to fall and break and stay broken because our students have too many negatives as it is. We can't. Oh, yeah. They, they already yeah. have so much stacked against them. Mm. You know, the other thing that, that comes to mind, and, you know, and, and, I, and I'll admit to you, Jason, I've been trying to fit this in in some way because uh, you, you said something to me a couple of years ago that was that was so profound and, and you know, sad, but profound. And it was we were talking about um, a family uh, of a that that you and I have been working with. And what was interesting is that you made the point that the parents had never given themselves the opportunity to grieve that they hadn't been able to accept the idea that their child was neurodiverse and they were focusing an exorbitant amount of energy trying to relate to their child in a manner that they wanted to relate to him too, which was for him to be neurotypical. 
And because they hadn't gone through that grieving process, they were never going to be in a position to find acceptance. And because they were never able to find acceptance, they were never, in my opinion, able to be in a position where they were able to, you know, create a relationship that worked for their child and for them. A relationship that, you know, because they hadn't gone through the grieving process, they, and I'm not being critical of them, I'm not judging, but by not going through a grieving process and reshifting, um, they missed out and are probably still missing out on perhaps having a wonderful relationship with their child. Yes. And maybe it's not, maybe it's not the type of relationship that they dreamed of. Right. Maybe it's not the type of relationship that's, you know, that's written into, you know, Hallmark movies, but you can still have wonderful, authentic relationships with these people. If you're willing to go through acceptance and grief. Right. I think there's two parts to that and it's easy to judge it's easy to judge people, especially parents, but also caregivers, if they if they see if they're trying really hard to turn a zebra into a horse for yeah. for a metaphor. When the reality is, being a zebra for neurodiverse, they could just be absolutely fine. But many of them do have what we would consider a disability, and it makes it really hard for them to function in some ways that causes a lot of pain. Uh, lack of executive functioning is just one. Um, and if the parents, I, there is something to grieve there, but also you can't give up the fight because they need a lot of extra help. They need, a, these kids typically need a lot more energy, intentional, creative parenting, um, lots of agility and resilience on their part as well. But I agree, if your expectations are too high, then you're always going to be in a fight or flight state. And then that will be passed on to your child. And I loved what you said at the beginning. One of the best ways you said that you can know whether you're pushing them too hard or not enough is if you're pushing them so hard that you lose the relationship. Yeah, That's a great barometer. I love that mm. because we actually work on relationships of influence. And if there's no relationship, as soon as they fall down and break, they're not going to come back to you. Mm. Even if you were right especially if you were right and you said, look, you're going to crash and burn and you, and you tell them instead of walk with them and, and you say, fine, you know, go, go hit your bottom and find out for yourself through tough love. They're just going to fall and break and not come back. Yeah. And that's that. I mean, and I don't mean to switch gears here, Jason, but that's another thing is, you know, I'll admit to you that it was one thing that's been very humbling to me in, in the work that I do. And it's really been happening. I've had a real, you know, shift in the advice I give to parents. That's been especially acute in the last handful of years. I was always, um, <laughs> I was always a very, very big advocate of tough love. Very, very much so. And in some cases I still am. Um, you know, when I first started working with teenagers in the early nineties, um, those are kids that needed tough love. But, you know, I also just described a couple of moments ago about what teenagers have been through, you know, what the world has been through, not just teenagers, but the world, a lot of the the tough love concepts that, that I endorse, that I practice, I can no longer do that. It would be irresponsible of me. And, you know, maybe one could say, well, Josh, you've gotten older and you've grown up and you've, and you've grown a heart. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. But the thing is, is that 
were I to use the approaches that I used in the 90s, which at the time were considered best practices, and I think that they, you know, for the most part, you know, they were appropriate for that particular time period. And now they were well meant. They, yeah, and and they they were well intended, and their outcomes in most cases were positive. They were actually effective. Some they were profoundly effective in many cases. That being said, we also have to, at this particular point in time, you know, with the vulnerability that we have with our children, you know, that our children have, you know, we can't push them too far; they'll fall down. But tough love can also be, you know, what I was alluding to earlier. Well, it sounds like you're really struggling right now. What is it that you can do to help yourself? That is considered by many people now to be tough love. I don't think it is, but that's how some people interpret it because we want to rescue our children. Right. We want to cover it for them. Tough love was always about what was effective, even if it was hard, not necessarily cold and and I and I agree that the same tactics that worked back then and approaches really aren't effective now. The world has changed, and it's yeah. not wimps, and we're just giving into a wimp culture. It really isn't as effective, or we would be doing it. But if I had said, if if my parents had said to me, you know, thirty years ago, well, it sounds like you're upset. What do you intend to do about it? I would have laughed hysterically at them. Okay, it's just that things have changed. Right. <laughs> you know, Dad, are you okay? <laughs> what's what's going on here? What would your dad said if you said, I'm really upset? What would the response have been from your dad? Life's rough. Get a helmet. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've become more an advocate as well that it's not about kicking the baby bird out of the nest and making them fly as much as it is. Keep them in, keep them in the cocoon as long as they can so that when they're ready they they will be ready to fly. And a lot of times pushing the baby birds out of the nest just means they, they get eaten by the snakes. Yeah. But the neurodiverse, they really aren't ready emotionally or socially, maybe intellectually, but not organizationally or maturity-wise to handle going off to college. And yet we aren't advocates of leaving them in the home. And I think that's the tough spot that most parents get is they know that home is no longer working. It's causing crises and marital issues and it's destroying the other siblings. But they also yeah. can't send them off to college. Um, what What do you recommend? Do you have any options? Do you have any thoughts? Um, I that's a tough one. And what I so I have thoughts on what they can do, but I can also have thoughts on what they should not do. They should not allow their child to live at home and do nothing. That there has to be an expectation that they will have a they will have structure. There has to be an expectation that they will find employment of some sort. That you know, perhaps there is um, some type of living arrangement that can be created. Whether it's living with other students and the parents help help one another out in terms of overseeing that apartment. Um, you know, the other piece too is if they do go to college, if they do go to you know some higher ed institution, it has to be one where there is a lot of oversight, where there is a lot of opportunity for, you know, where there's going to be people checking in. The other piece too is, is that there has to be, um, it should be something that's relatively close by if it's not a specialized program. So the, the families that really struggle the most are the ones who are put in the conundrum of 
I, they're not ready to live on their own completely, but how do we find proper parameters? You know, how do we create our child to have a sense of meaning? I, you know, will often, you know, there are a number of students that I've worked with over the years who, um, if they're given guidance, there's this, um, and, and I don't want to mention the name of it because it would be rude and inappropriate, um, but there's a store that's in the Northeast that's specifically uh, a board game store. And there's a number of students of mine that are neurodiverse who go to this particular store to buy board games, but several nights a week, the owners of the store open the store specifically to the patrons where they play esoteric board games. Right. And one of my kids asked me if I wanted to come along. I would have nothing to offer that group because they're all infinitely smarter than I am. (laughs) But I walked in and I felt like I was in a Star Trek convention. It was one of the funniest and most endearing, lovable scenes I'd ever seen that these kids had found a group right. to hang out with. If they, can, if, they can t- if they can find their tribe, I think that if, if they can find their tribe, that's the most important thing. Other things can fall into place with support. Parents can offer support, but they cannot. But finding the tribe to me is the most important thing. Well, developmentally, they cannot rely on their parents to know that they're enough. They get to a place where they have to have peer acceptance. And that's what typical teenagers go through at around 13, 14, 15. Mm -hmm. Um, But our students don't get that very well anyway. And and then they have to start working on that as they get older. So Josh, a couple of things before we close up, I want to know what you're passionate about. What do you love? In terms of the work that I do. (laughs) Yeah, sure. We're both. Um, what is it that I'm passionate about? Okay. So, uh, I, a lot of things. I love working with, uh, students at the second and about midway through their journey. One of the most rewarding elements of my job is that unfortunately I visit a lot of kids, meet a lot of families when the kids are in acute crisis I unfortunately had to visit a lot of students of mine who have just been admitted into psych wards um, or are living in their parents' basement who are just beside themselves. That's not the high point. That's the sad point. That's doing the intervention. That's supporting the family. That's sort of in the trenches. What I love is months down the road um, after parents you know, we're in a position where the child's in the right place. They're getting the help that they need. And this kid starts to come back to life. And this kid is starting to re-engage in the world or for the first time has found a level of engagement in the world. And they're in a specialized or therapeutic program, but the time has come for them to um, start the process of leaving and for them to be in a position of where they feel the confidence, they have the confidence and they feel the ownership um, that they are in charge of their destiny. And they, you know, I will often say to them, listen, I probably don't have a lot of credibility with you because I'm the one that came in and put you into some type of treatment. And you probably had a lot of anger and hostility. 
I'm not apologizing to you for that. I'm sorry if you're upset with me, but I really want to help you with this next stop. I really, really want to help you, you know, get to the next stage of your life. If you're willing, I'd really like to work with you again, but this time uh, it needs to be a collaboration. And I'm really not interested in collaborating with your parents as much this time. Yep. I'd rather collaborate with you. Now, will you? Will you? I love that partnering. Will you partner with me? You know? And, you know, just to see how they're like, oh, wow, you're not the devil after all. Hmm. <laughs> and just to be able to. Or he, he respects me enough to actually partner with me. Yeah. That's a yeah. huge confidence booster. And, and they've usually. I, I, I'd like to think so. So I guess, you know, what am I, what am I passionate about? I'm passionate about seeing kids feel empowered that, you know, kids, you know, who just have been able to, and, and I would argue that, you know, and what, what I love about those kids is that those are the ones who, you know, really, really struggled profoundly at one point and they're in a much better position and they're going to, to new opportunities that aren't necessarily therapeutically driven or specialized, but the level of resilience and wisdom and competence that they have is usually so far and beyond what most teenagers have. So I see the kids that I met when they were in dire straits to within a relatively short period of time down the road to be in a much better position than most people. That's, that's really rewarding. That's beautiful. And I, yeah, I feel you on that. Um, I think it's, as much as we don't, as parents don't want to have to meet with someone like you and, or, you know, be in a situation where their kid is in crises, I think it's also really comforting for people to know that there are people like you that can help guide them through that process and make sure that they're getting matched, as you said, with the right resources and help and support, and that there is hope through that process. You approach it logically. Um, how can parents get in touch with you or, you know, well, I mean, they can Google my name, you know, Josh Doyle or Joshua Doyle. My mother calls me Joshua. Uh, Joshua Doyle, educational consultant, and I'm located in Boston. You can do a quick Google search. Um, shoot me an email. Call me. You don't have to call a receptionist to get hold of me. Uh, if somebody calls and says, I need to speak with you, I'll, I'll make myself available. I do. I'm pretty blunt, and I'm pretty blunt as to when I can't help. Okay. Valuable. Yeah, I mean, I just there's I I'm very good at doing a couple of things, and I'm lousy at doing a lot of things, and I'm very clear about what I'm not competent in. Okay, (laughs) I think it's important for parents to understand that the reason someone would hire an educational consultant would be to avoid trying to find and do your own research online. Like Josh said, he's he's visited hundreds and hundreds of programs, and it's his job to know the specific people that are the key players at a school or a program. And it's usually those players that make the program or the school more than what the school was set up to do. A lot of schools mm-hmm. started out great and then were sold off, and the key players left. The school is still there, same procedures, same programming, but the program just isn't the same after that. And that's that's what consultants have that the internet doesn't have. And if you're going to spend a lot of money or hard-earned money um, on a program to help, you want to get the right one. And there is a lot of programs out there 
to help. Uh, many of them are out of a lot of people's price range, but sometimes it's it's not, and there's just there's just some options that you can't figure out on your own. It's a very mm-hmm. specialized environment. Uh, Josh is like well, a surgeon of mm-hmm. consultants. <laughs> So I think that the 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 quick takeaways is that it's you know one of the things I often have to demystify is a lot of people go online and they'll read about the different schools or programs, but it's really important to remember uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier how teenagers have changed so much the world has changed so much. Um, a lot of people are under the impression that the schools that have been around the longest that are the longest standing institutions have the most you know institutional memory, they have the greatest resources, um, they've been doing it forever, they must really know what they're doing. Uh, that's something that a lot of people, especially on the East Coast feel, especially the Northeast. Um, when it comes to therapeutic placements, that philosophy could not be further from the truth. Right. Interesting. A lot of the older institutions, a lot of the therapeutically driven programs uh, that are older are in many ways antiquated. And it's important that, you know, as a consultant, I will often go into new programs that are relatively new. And then I have to tell parents, uh, you know, explain to them, listen, I understand that this school, this program has only been around for a handful of years, but you need to understand that they're doing cutting edge work. The programs that perhaps have been around for far longer, um, they don't get it. <laughs> Just neurodiversity has changed and grown and developed. And it's interesting you say that. One of my philosophies starting and running Techie for Life, I won't hire outside. Um, I, I haven't been willing to yet anyway, hire outside already trained employees as mentors or staff or program directors, because I want to train them up from scratch because I don't yeah. want them coming in with any old ideas um, otherwise we're already, we're already wearing weights. We're already mm-hmm. weighing ourselves down with the past. And just one thing, and I, and I know we have to wind down, but just the, and just, just to compliment you on that, you know, Jason, and, and if, if I could just end with this thought, um, I love what you just said about that in terms of wanting to bring in people that are fresh, because in the 1980s and nineties, as I was learning more about neuro, you know, atypical development, you know, at the time, which is called primarily, you know, Asperger syndrome. Um, one of the biggest misconceptions was is that people would say, and all the time, and we're talking about people at uh, teaching colleges, people that are neurodiverse do not have empathy. They used to say that right. all the time, and we know that's not true. Right. We know that's not true. Right. And so Perfect. it's so important that you know, yeah. And so even finding textbooks that were written 15 years ago could be wildly misleading to these poor parents that read from prestige, prestigious colleges, you know, Ivy league schools, the professor saying uh, people who are neurotypical don't, you know, display empathy. They They can't have empathy. Yeah. And we all know that that's wildly untrue. Right. In fact, they're sometimes so empathetic that it. Oh yeah, totally but again, it. Oh, but it's yeah, but they don't but, show. But it, you're right. But then going back to that, the parent has to realize, oh, they're they're showing empathy in their own way, and, but it is authentic, right? Yes. It's authentic, and they spend an an enormous amount of energy trying to measure up to the people around them so that they don't 
say the wrong thing and yeah. not be acceptable. They, de- they desperately want to not be a problem. They feel so mm-hmm. much shame that they're quirky and up. And so you're, you're exactly right. Josh, we could talk for hours and we, yeah. And I you know, and, uh, but in closing, I love techie for life. I love the work that you do uh, in a handful of visits I've had at techie for life. When I've gone to see you folks and meet your community and meet the students I place there, whenever I leave, I'm laughing hysterically. Because your your students make me laugh, and yeah. I'm not laughing at them. We okay? love. Them. I'm not they, laughing they, at them. They their sense of humor and wit is unmatched, right? It's just they're perfectly imperfect, and they're endearingly quirky, and I love them. And it's thank so you. great when they find themselves. So thank you for recognizing that. And Josh, thanks right. for joining us. We really appreciate you coming on Absolutely. our show, and we'll link to um, your information in our show notes. So parents want to thank reach you. out to you, Josh's. All right. One of the best in our industry. Let's hope for 2021, it will be a better year. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Josh. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. dot com.